something from 1960s about it. And it's not like one of the stories that's been miracles. It's a story, yeah. Oh, you still remember it? I think you forget. <laughs> Look, I wasn't sure because I thought some of you would buy the book in English. So I was there with the one. There's at least two. I just wanted to read enough to, to whet your appetite to get your book. If it wasn't enough, I might just read another chapter. But it's only... Yeah, sure. Okay, this is uh, going back to Crown Heights in the in the early 60s. In the early 60s, Crown Heights was a Jewish community. It was a Jewish community in Crown Heights. Some Hasidim were there too. But the Hasidic group was very small actually in Crown Heights. Okay. One of the Stiblach. You know what a Stibla is? Yeah. What's a stibble? A little house. Right. Uh, where, they, where, they where they learn, where they make a shoe out of it. Oh, that's right. Stibloch is when you have small synagogue, not a modern structure. Stibloch. Stibloch is a place where any time you go to pray, there's always a minion. You can always pray there. So in one of the stibloch, one of the small synagogues in Crown Heights, there was a group of Jews who left Poland. Most of them were Holocaust survivors that went through the Holocaust. And they prayed together, learned together, they spoke in Yiddish, like they spoke in the Altaheim, in the old home. One of the outstanding personalities of this group is Rav Eliezer Nikolboim. He was the love of a place called Parzu. And um, he was, uh, he was a very sharp person scholar and one of the members of the congregation his name was of Yosef Matisyahu Engel he's the one we're going to talk about now Yosef Matisyahu Engel just here's a picture of him just you could visualize this is Rav Engel Rav Yosef Engel right but this goes back to the 60s uh, Rabbi Yosef Engel, this fellow that you just saw the picture, he went through the Holocaust, he went through the suffering, he went from camp to camp, and with big miracles he was saved. After the war he reached out to Israel, there he married, and uh, in 1952 he came to the United States, and he lived in Crown Heights. He met this congregation of Polish Jews, and that's where he found his natural environment and he became a dominant feature of the synagogue in 1962 he went to Yechidus to the Rebbe Yechidus means? okay now Rabbi Engel says that I was a resident of Crown Heights and I came from a Hasidic background I would once in a while enter 770 pray there together with the Rebbe or sometimes listen to a Fabrengen of his but that was it in those days the Rebbe would accept people for Yechidus 
during several nights of the week. People would come from all over the world just to have a chance to have Yechidus with the Rebbe. But I, who lived in close proximity to the Rebbe, I never thought of going to Yechidus. Uh, on one hand, I didn't feel myself connected enough to the Rebbe. And on the other hand, why should I just go in for no reason? Chassidim go to the Rebbe because they're Chassidim. But if you're not a Chassid, then you only go if you have a valid reason to go. 1962, I had valid reason to go. Uh, the problem was that the rabbi of the community, the rabbi I mentioned before, Rabelezo, um, no, I skipped a part. Okay, I, I had a friend at Crown Heights who was Lubavitcher, a good friend, and he like, uh, turned my my vision a little bit in a different channel he told me like this that the Rebbe has two uniforms one uniform is he's the Rebbe of Lubavitch but he also has a second uniform he's the Rebbe of all the Jewish people okay in those days the Rebbe was located in 770 Lubavitch was small scale you know, by the time uh, you reach the 1980s, the Rebbe was the international Rebbe of the whole world. Mm -hmm. But in those years, in the 50s and the 60s, he was a rabbi in Crown Heights, which not many people knew even about. He was some Lubavitch Rebbe, but people didn't know he was. <laughs> okay, Chassidim have a sharp eye of detection, and even in those days, they saw that the Rebbe was the Rebbe of everyone. Which means, in plain English, that every Jew has the ability to be connected to the Rebbe. And the fact that I don't feel enough connected, that is not sufficient reason not to go to Yechidus. So I began realizing that I should also go to the Rebbe. This is Rabbi Yosef Engel speaking. Now the first problem that I dealt with was with the Rabbi I mentioned before, the Rabbi of Pautzov, we prayed with him, we heard lessons in Torah from him, and he was very sick, Achman al-Islam, with a terrible sickness. He didn't have a family, so I felt responsible to concern and uh, worry for him. And I had several major important questions about treatment, and I wanted to ask it to the Rebbe. That was the first reason I had to go to Yechidus. The second reason was, um, I had begun... I came, had a connection with a certain group of Chassidim called Ostrovitcher. Ostrovitcher Chassidim. I never heard of them before either. Like I don't know. It's with a base there. Ostrovitcher. I don't know. Anyway, my father was a Chassid of that group of Chassidim. And uh, my father's Rebbe of that group was killed by the Nazis. And uh, I felt responsible that that group of Chassidim shouldn't be wiped out. So I wanted to write about uh, their history. And I wanted to ask the Rebbe how I should do it. Am I the right person to do it or not? That was the second reason I wanted to go to Yechidus. The third reason was that year was 10 years since I had left the Holy Land. So which year are we talking about now? 1951. He left. Alex Saul, which year? 1952. 1952. This is 1962, oh, 1962. Ten years later. 
and I decided it's time to visit the Holy Land again. And in those days, it wasn't so simple to go to Eretz Yisrael the way it's simple to do that now. And for me, it was a major question, it was an emotional question, should I do it or not? And I wanted to hear the advice and blessing of the Rebbe before I do that. Okay. Okay, so when all these things got together, I turned to the secretary of the Rebbe with a request to go to Yechidus. If it would have been a personal issue, it would have taken a long time to get a private audience with the Rebbe. But these were major important issues dealing with the rabbi of Pautzov, his health. So relatively quickly I was accepted to Yechidus. And I found myself one night, late at night, by the door of the Rebbe. It's my turn to enter. And since I came not as a chassid, when the Rebbe asked me to sit, I sat down, even though I knew that you usually don't sit in front of the Rebbe. As customary, I wrote my issues on a piece of paper, I gave it to the Rebbe, and uh, the Rebbe took a glance, and the first thing he talked about was the health of this rabbi, Rabbi of Parchov. His name was Eliezer uh, Nickelbun. And the Rebbe said his health was very bad, his energy was going from day to day and it was painful for the community to see the rabbi becoming weaker and weaker and we were in the middle of making an important decision. On one hand the doctor said that there were certain treatments that could stop the spreading of the disease. On the other hand, those treatments itself are painful. They, they, they themselves weaken the person. So we didn't know which direction <coughs> to turn. The Rebbe's opinion was clear. Everything has to be done in order to stop the disease from spreading. And the Rebbe said that in those days, there's a major conference of doctors in Moscow. Doctors from different parts of the world are there, and they're dealing particularly about this disease, this dangerous disease, so the Rebbe wanted that the doctors dealing with this rabbi should be in contact with, with this major uh, conference. conference, and in case there's any new things they come up with, these doctors should know about. Maybe there's some new approach of treatment. And I remember the Rebbe said <coughs> that we have to do everything in our power that in parentheses, it's self-understood, we did everything we could afterwards following the advice of the Rebbe mm -hmm. and um, we told the doctors what the Rebbe said and we went with the Rebbe's direction but unfortunately this rabbi didn't live too much longer he wasn't young and it was a terrible disease besides all the pain he went through in the, during the Holocaust and he passed away and he was buried in Nezisol. Okay, that was one issue. What was the second issue you had to talk about? Well, that was the third one. What was the second issue? This is not part of the learning, this is just a story. This you should know. <coughs> what was the second issue? About writing a book of this Hasidic group that his father was connected to. He wasn't sure if he's the right person and how he should write it. And, and, the, and, the, and they shouldn't die out? This is the right, right. That's right. 
Okay. So the Rebbe's answer was that if from today, today is which year? 62. Until the end of all generations, there's going to be even one individual Jew that's going to read the Sefer, this book, and will learn from this one good midah, one good attribute, one positive way of serving Hashem, that all the investment involved in this book is worth it. And disregard all obstacles and, and get to work. And write it. So Rebbe's approach was, you should do it. Mm -hmm. Because one person might read it and get affected by it, so it's worth it. Mm -hmm. See the way the Rebbe looks at things. Sometimes people... Okay. Sometimes we have writers who aren't sure if they should write or not. So sometimes we have the answer over here that if one Jew could be affected, you know, even years later, it's worth it. Okay. Am I psychic? And concerning the third issue, what was the third issue? Israel. Right, you should go to Israel. So once the Rebbe began speaking about Israel, the topic changed and the Rebbe started speaking about education. And uh, the topic turned about the discussion of the Holocaust and I had some type of mini debate with the Rebbe about the Holocaust. I went, he says, he went through the Holocaust he went through the camps, and besides everything that he went through, he saw terrible things, which is hard to even relate. <coughs> and uh, after the Holocaust, he did some research, speaking to friends and different people, and he saw the tragedies that took place. He knew firsthand what happened. And I told the Rebbe that from the time the Jewish nation was born until today, we never went through a catastrophe to the extent of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. The Rebbe didn't agree with that. Without diminishing in any way the tremendous tragedy of the Holocaust, the Rebbe claimed that the destruction of the Second Temple was not less, was not less uh, tragic in percentage-wise about how much, what percentage of our nation perished during that period. During the Holocaust, a third of the nation perished. The Rebbe says during the Second Temple, it was more than that. And I told the Rebbe that I know about the tragedies that took place in the Holocaust, about these people and these tzaddikim and that, that, this and that. And then the Rebbe said something which had a powerful impact on me. And I don't know if the Rebbe said it in a question tone or as a statement. Because he mentioned, Rabbi Yosef, he mentioned that there were big tzaddikim, holy Jews, who went through the Holocaust and they, were, they, they perished. So the Rebbe said, this rabbi of a strofzer, this rabbi that got killed by the Nazis, he saw himself as a sacrifice for all the Jewish people. And it could be before he was killed, he said, I am the sacrifice of all the Jewish people. Perhaps all the Jewish great people who were killed, they all said to Hashem, take me as a sacrifice, but save the rest of the nation. And I remember that the Rebbe told me at that point, the saying of his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, 
that when you give a smack to a person, you do it in the face. That represents that the greatest people of the generation were killed in the Holocaust. When Hashem gives a smack, it's at the face. And then the Rebbe stressed that the main thing we have to learn from the Holocaust is our obligation, our responsibility. The fact that from millions of Jews we were saved, only we were saved, this adds to our responsibility for the survival of the Jewish people. Here's a picture of, uh, of, the, of the rabbis of that group of Hasidim that I was talking about. I don't know, one of them or both of them were by the Nazis, I don't know which one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, um, this is just one of many lessons we learned from the Holocaust? Yeah, no, the, the Lebbis say... Yeah, yes, this is the primary lesson. primary lesson is not to delve in the past, but how the past okay. affects the future. We have the responsibility to carry on the torch of the Jewish nation. And if Hashem miraculously saved us, we have an additional responsibility. Does he mean all Jewish people who survived? Yes, yes. Even though they weren't born yet. And their children. Yes, yes. We are all survivors of the Holocaust. That's who we all are. Come from in there. one way or the other. Yeah. And that been mentioned by Fabrengs also more than once that we have a major responsibility now more than ever before to rebuild the Jewish nation, to undo that which the Nazis did. Then the discussion turned to my trip to Eretz Yisrael, and the Rebbe began talking about education in Eretz Yisrael. I knew, I was in Eretz Yisrael, so I knew about uh, the spiritual level of Eretz Yisrael, and I knew that the, prob- the major problem was that Jewish children are not receiving the proper education, especially those who left from the Holocaust, there were like 100,000 children, survivors of the Holocaust, who came to Yisrael, and they were placed in schools where there was no Torah learning. There was even anti-Torah learning. And the Rebbe was very upset with this. And I could see that in the eyes of the Rebbe, the Rebbe said actually, that this is a continuation of the Holocaust. The fact that you take children, teach them against Torah, that's a continuation. That was very careful in not mentioning any names when he was discussing this issue. But it was very painful. The Rebbe was very pained. And you could see how emotional the Rebbe was when he spoke about the children who aren't getting a good education. The truth is that being a, a survivor of the Holocaust myself, I was surprised on the Rebbe's comparison. The Rebbe's comparing the Holocaust with what's taking place now in Israel, in 1962. I just couldn't handle that initially. It sounded sounded like too extreme in my eyes. But as we continued talking, I realized the Rebbe's comparison was based on his his tremendous avas Yisrael, tremendous love he has to every Jewish child is so precious in the eyes of the Rebbe. And as the years passed by, I recognized this more and more. The Yechidus lasted for three quarters of an hour. It was the first Yechidus I had. It was also the last one. 
In the passing years, I went to the Rebbe every once in a while to Fabrengen. And once in a while, I came for dollars. And um, okay, this continues a little bit more into uh, another experience he had with the Rebbe. But one of the things that happened in that Yechidus was in the Yechidus, he tells the Rebbe when they were speaking about the Shoah, the, the Holocaust, he says, Rebbe Engel says to the Rebbe, Oi, when will Mashiach come already? When he asked that, the Rebbe's face became very serious and there was a silence in the room, a very strange silence for a couple seconds. And then the Rebbe said, just as in the years Tach Vetat, that's um, Tach Vetat, this is 14, uh, 450 years ago. Tach Vetat, 450 years ago, and uh, there were many pogroms against the Jews from uh, in Poland when hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed in uh, terrible wars that were taking place I don't know how they call this in English, those, those pogroms huh? right, right, but it was a, it was a special period right, that, that, that was that, right right Okay, so that, those are called Tach v'tat. In the prayers we say every Shabbos before Musaf, after we read the Torah, there's a special insertion called Ovarachamim. That's what we say before Ashray. That's said specially in connection to what took place at that period. So the Rebbe says, just as during those ter- that t- terrible period, 50 years didn't pass, and the Baal Shemta was born. Likewise, 50 years will not pass from the Holocaust, and we will merit to have the true redemption. It's more than 50 years now. It's more than 50 years. It's a couple years after 50 years. It ended in 1945, right. 95 was the end, right. So, you, Mashiach? That's about when the Rebbe came, isn't that? Isn't that just about around the time that Rebbe came to the United States? No, no. Around 1950, 1950? No, right after the war. 50 years after the war is 1995. 95, 96, 95. Right. He was a Rebbe for almost 45 years or thereabouts. Okay, whatever, but in any case, in any case, <laughs> I'm guessing. I mean, I'm not doing it on paper. Before 50 years were over, there was a greater, greater anticipation that any second. But like the Rebbe always said, the fact that Mashiach didn't come one day, one day past Mashiach didn't come, it's completely not understood why Mashiach didn't come yet. The Rebbe himself said. Rebbe himself kept on saying it's completely not understood Mashiach didn't come. On the other hand, the Rebbe is saying you have to await Mashiach and realize Mashiach is about to come. And by the forbearance of the Rebbe, these two extremes, the Rebbe kept on expressing. 
And that's the healthy attitude that a Jew has. The healthy attitude is, it doesn't make sense Mashiach didn't come yet. How could it be that another day passed? It's already 50 years afterwards. It's already after everything. Mashiach didn't come. When Deb was speaking about Rebbe Fabengas, Deb was crying. How could be Mashiach didn't come yet? On the other hand, the other extreme is, yes, Mashiach is about to come and we have to be ready for him. These are the two extremes that he's supposed to have. And by the Fabengas of the Rebbe, we always heard these two extremes. I'm and really that's a healthy Jew. I'm really confused on that, and you know why, Rabbi. Is there any way you can explain that? Explain what? Well, the contradiction. The contra- according to Lubavitch, according to the, the Rebbe said he was the Mashiach. So why would he say he's being so unhappy that he didn't come yet? Because that's a healthy attitude of a Jew. If a father kicks a child out of a house, so the child has two options. One option is, okay, he kicked me out, so I'm not going to go home. That's one way. The other way is he's knocking on the door. Tati, I have to go back in. And Tati thinks, sorry. And Tati says, sorry. So what does the child do? He knocks again. And the child screams to the door. He says, Tati, I, I, I don't belong outside. It's cold outside. I belong inside. And you told me I'm going to be punished. I know I'm going to be punished. But it's already late. You punished me enough. Now it's time to get back in. So you knock on the door, and the father doesn't open the door. So what do you do? You're still the father. You, you knock again. Uh-huh. You knock more, right? Okay. So, and when we knock, then eventually the father's going to open the door. Okay? But if the child is going to stop knocking and say, you kick me out? Okay, I knock, you didn't open? It's niched, so it's not. If that's the attitude, then why should the father open the door? So the child is supposed to say, Tati, I don't understand if you love me so much and I know you love me and I love you so much, how could it be that you don't open the door for me? That doesn't make sense. On the other hand, the child is supposed to realize the father will open the door eventually. The question is just a second early, a second later. But the child who's knocking on the door is going through these two extremes. On one extreme, how could it be the door is not open yet? It doesn't make sense. On the other extreme, he knows the door is going to open soon. And that's what the Rebbe kept on telling us. He kept on saying, one second Mashiach didn't come. It doesn't make sense. He was supposed to be already. On the other hand, he's about to come and get ready for him. These are the two extremes that we always have to go through. Mashiach didn't come up to this second. It's a tragedy. How could it be? It doesn't make sense. That's for the last second. But we're sure Mashiach is about to come and we have to get ready for him. We can't sit back and just wait. We have to take constructive measures and get ready for Mashiach. So would the Rebbe, Rebbe have cried if, if he was a Mashiach and he knew he was a Mashiach? <coughs> why should he be so, why should it be so painful? I mean, that's what Lubavitch believes, and I believe it too. How do you know he was Mashiach? I accept it. I don't have to know it intellectually. I know it. The issue we're talking about is having the complete redemption with the building of the Third Base of Midrash. And the Rebbe kept on telling us that Mashiach is about to come. His coming is imminent and we have to get ready. And then the Rebbe tells us the fact that he didn't come yet doesn't make sense. And then afterwards he says again, he's about to come and let's get ready. These are the two extremes. They don't always, you can't always feel both extremes in, in, in the feelings, in the heart, same second. It's hard to feel both of them in the very same second. That he's about to come, anticipation, and at the same you're so broken he didn't come yet. But these are the two feelings that the Rebbe is teaching us that we have to have. 
And that's a healthy Jew. That shows the Nisham is healthy. The child is knocking on the door. He has to have both feelings. But you feel like a skip though. Like, really, like, like, okay, Michelle, that's so sad. But Michelle's coming now. Like, it's, it's like, yeah, it's hard to keep it up. After I finish. Okay. Um, well, it's like this. Something which is, you could afford to do without, then it would be, get ridiculous after a while to keep on knocking. And, uh, you know, you go to a store, you go to a bank, you, you have to buy something. And you, there's someone there who doesn't want to open. You knock once, you knock twice, and you go away. But if it's a question of life and death, if it's a major issue, you don't stop knocking. If there's a doctor in there, and you need that doctor to save someone in the family, you're going to knock, and you're not going to walk away. So whenever it's an issue of life and death, you just keep on going. Or even if it's not life and death, anything which is very important in our lives. Let's say you have a major business undertaking, someone's a business, and he knows he needs this contact to succeed. He's not going to stop. He's going to knock and knock again. He's never going to stop. If, uh, if, if you love someone and, and you love that person so much and that person doesn't look at you, you're going to continue pressing. When something is really important in your life, you just keep on going. But if it's only luxury, it's only, you know, it's, it's the compote. It's the, it's the you know what compote is? <laughs> yeah, if it's the applesauce, that's right. It's dessert. If it's dessert, if Mashiach is a dessert, then after a while you stop knocking. But if it's part of our lives, you don't stop knocking because it's our life. So we have such a deep connection to Hashem that we're convinced Mashiach is about to come. Because our Father in heaven is not going to throw us away, He's going to open the door soon. How do we know that? Because we're so connected to Hashem that we know that. On the other hand, he didn't open the door yet. That's a tragedy. How could it be he didn't open the door yet? That's a tragedy. Like the Rebbe says, Kolu Kolakiks, and all the dates that Mashiach was supposed to come passed already. There are many dates that Mashiach was supposed to come. All of them passed already. The Rebbe says the Gemara even mentions that. When the Gemara discusses the redemption, the Gemara says there were many dates, and all of them are finished already. And Mashiach didn't come yet. So now the only thing we have to do is wait for Mashiach without any dates. Mashiach has to come. But this is a very high level that the Rebbe is expecting of us that we should have these two feelings, but that's what we have to have. Isn't it more that there's like a date that God said that Mashiach will come, but Mashiach could come earlier if we merit There is an ultimate date that after that the by that date Mashiach has to come. Right. But we don't know that date. We just right. know about 6,000 years. We don't know and any so dates. It's the same, whatever, sometimes the future, but the Rebbe was always on that he could come earlier. Right, but the Rebbe's attitude was the opposite, that he's late. Is Mashiach, if he comes today, is he early or is he late? He's late. See, it's like the joke they say, if Mashiach comes, how am I going to greet him? Some people will greet him. Ah, Boch Hashem, we're so happy. We're going to say, you're late. What took you so long? Like all the Myers said, what took you so long? When he came to Israel, she said, what took you so long? <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go to. Let's travel to Nayach now. To Chumash. Could anyone re- remind us what we spoke about last week? We can. Well, the bottom line is this: preparation is that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have to reach a certain step of maturity to be able to. Right. Okay. Preparation leads to the 
God wants us to have a relationship to Him. And Noah did that preparation. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, what we're dealing with is two levels of holiness. We have a holiness of Hashem, which is drawn and invested into the world, into the nature of the world. That's one degree of holiness. She mentioned last week, this is symptom, right? After symptom, Hashem lowers himself down according to the world, within nature. Then we have a higher degree of holiness, which is beyond nature, higher than the world. When Hashem creates the world, he creates the world with a purpose that the holiness, which is higher than nature, higher than creation, that holiness has to be drawn into the world within creation. That's the ultimate purpose of creation. In order to achieve that purpose, you have to have a world, you need a creation, and then you introduce higher than creation into creation. Now, Maimonides says, when he discusses the days of Mashiach, he says when Mashiach comes, it should not enter your heart that there will be a change in the laws of nature. Do not think that the customs of the world will change when Mashiach comes. Rather, the world will proceed as was in a natural course. What does change is our own sovereignty. We will have our own king, and we will be free to serve Hashem without any obstacles. Nowadays, we're not free. We don't have our own sovereignty. Nowadays, the government in Israel cannot do what it wants. It's subject to listen to what Washington is going to say. What Paris is going to say. We have no sovereignty nowadays. When Shia comes, we will have full sovereignty and we will be able to serve Hashem properly. But as far as nature goes, the Rambam says, do not, Maimonides says, don't expect changes in nature. The world will continue on its own course. Why is this important to know? Why does the Rambam feel it's so important to tell us that the world will be in a natural way? There's more than one reason for this. But the reason we're going to discuss now is Torah and mitzvahs, they are the purpose of creation. Torah and mitzvahs comes from the light of God which is above creation. Torah and mitzvahs are intrinsically connected to God. The light, of, the light of God which is above creation. The holiness of Hashem which is higher than creation. Now, that light has to shine within creation. When will that light shine within creation in its highest level when Mashiach comes? Mm-hmm. Till Mashiach comes, we're lacking. There's a vacuum. There's a problem. When Mashiach comes, the purpose of creation is achieved, which means the holiness of Torah and Mitzvah, the holiness of God, is exposed within the world. But the catch is it has to be within the world, within a natural world. Because if there's going to be miracles in the world, then you're cheating. Then you haven't achieved the purpose of creation. Because Torah mitzvahs has not been drawn into creation, into the world of nature. Instead, you're, you're pushing aside nature, and you're going into miracles, and you don't have the purpose of creation. Hashem wants a world, a natural world, and inside that natural world, you have the holiness of Hashem. 
And that's why it's so essential that when Mashiach comes, the world will be a natural world. Because in a natural world, then we have the purpose of creation. So therefore, write down your question. Therefore, when Hashem has this plan of history, so Hashem goes step by step. The first thing He does is, is He says, I want to have a world. Without Torah mitzvahs. This is the Torah Mount Sinai. First, I want a world. But I want to have a decent world. Or at least a half-decent world. A world that could be conducive to Torah mitzvahs. That's the first step of creation. You need a setup. You need a background. You need a world. After you have that, then Hashem throws Torah mitzvahs into the picture. That's Matan Torah. God gives the Torah on Sinai. He introduces a higher light, a higher holiness, higher than creation. That's the second step. When will these two merge together to its ultimate? That's when Mashiach comes. So everything that happened before Matan Torah was part of the preparation. And that's where Noach comes to the picture. Noach, his job was to have a world, make a world, make a decent world. The world was corrupt, so there was a flood. What was the purpose of the flood? To have a civilized, cohesive world. And that was Noach's job. After you have that world, then you can introduce Abraham, Moses, David. They can introduce higher levels, higher degrees of holiness. And that's why we have the seven mitzvahs b'nei Noach, the seven mitzvahs which God gave to the children of Noach. All non-Jews are responsible to fulfill the seven mitzvahs. <coughs> They're mentioned at the end of Noach. We will get to it in Mitzvah eventually. The end of Noach, we'll see those seven laws. Now, What's the difference between the 613 mitzvahs God gave to the Jews and the seven mitzvahs that God gave to, to the Bnei Noyach? How are they different? The difference is that the seven mitzvahs Bnei Noyach, their purpose is that the world should be civilized. It should be a civilized, cohesive world. That's the purpose. Don't steal, don't kill, and so on. The purpose of the 613 mitzvahs is to introduce a higher light, a higher holiness, higher than creation, into the world. So you must first have this background. When you have a, a beautiful piece of art, you have two parts to it. You have the frame, and then you put the picture in the frame. If you have a picture without a frame, you won't appreciate the beauty. But if you have a frame, the best frame without the picture, you have nothing. So first you have to have a frame. That's Noyach. That's the children of Noyach. You have to have a civilized world. Then you put the picture inside. Then you put the Torah mitzvahs inside and it shines. It's beautiful. And that's why it says which means proper, proper respect precedes Torah. Why does it precede Torah? Not because it's more important than Torah. But that's the only way Torah could flourish. That's when you could appreciate Torah. So you have to have this frame of Torah And that's what the seven mitzvahs are. That's what, that's what Noyach represents. Now Noyach, when he was serving God, he could only serve God based on human potential. But not beyond that. 
he could reach a certain connection to holiness as much as a human being is capable of achieving, but not more than that. What happens to Abraham and Moses and David is that we have into this world, we introduce something new into this world, something beyond human capacity, something beyond human nature. That's the holiness of Abraham, Moses and David. But Noah didn't have that liberty of being in contact with the beyond. He was limited to the within creation. So therefore it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault that he didn't achieve the greatness of Abraham, Moses and David. He was a tzaddik in his generation, but had he been in the generation of Abraham, David and Moses, he would have been nothing. But it wasn't his fault. He would have been nothing because he could only do his most, and he did his most. And he gets full credit for doing the most. But he doesn't come close to Abraham, Moses, and David. Because they did more than their most. How can you do more than their most? Because they had this godly intervention, they had this godly help to reach beyond Simtsum. Higher than God's contraction into the limitations of nature. Abraham was able to reach a higher state. Now how does this apply to our lives? When we serve Hashem, we have to ask ourselves, what's the motivation? Why are we serving Hashem? Now one way, one answer would be, it makes sense to serve Hashem. Just think about it and it makes sense. For many reasons it makes sense. It makes sense that God is here and God gave us the Torah. It makes sense that uh, we should have and we should carry on the Jewish tradition and it makes sense to have a good life by being Jewish just a better life you look at the Hasidic families you look at the religious families they just have a better life physically forget about spiritually it's physically they're more content they're happier they have a deeper life a more appreciative life than people out there more accepting physically and emotionally yeah, emotionally, that's what I mean, right. Emotionally. Even Religiously, of course, we have a connection to Hashem. Well, I don't mean that, but just... They once had a study. It was printed in, in one of the papers in Israel. The leftist paper. They said that that heart attacks, Le'aleinu, amongst religious Jews is much less than amongst others. Physically. Because physical health is also determined by emotional health. Okay. Okay, for whatever reason... So if you want to have a good life physically, you want to enjoy life, you want to enjoy life, it's worth being religious. But that's not the ultimate of the motivations. That shouldn't be our objective. You want to get a good life, become religious. That shouldn't be the objective. But some people have that. You can start out with that, right. But you have to grow. person has to grow. We have to mature. What's the ultimate objective of serving? What's the ultimate motivation of serving Hashem? The ultimate motivation is that we have to reach a connection of Hashem <coughs> not because it's worth it for me, but because God said so. Because God holy, God's holiness influences us to the extent that we have to serve Hashem. Isn't it love for Hashem too? And that's the difference between Noah and Abraham. Noah served Hashem as much as he could. Abraham went beyond. Abraham went a step beyond. Now, if you look at the life of Abraham, 
we see that how did Abraham begin his career of serving Hashem? His parents worshipped idols. His community worshipped idols. It was mandatory to worship idols in those days. It was accepted. Came Abraham and he rejected idolatry. How did he reject it? How did he know to reject it? So the sages say that he just did simple research. He looked up on heaven, he saw the stars, and he saw the sun and the moon, and he asked himself a question. Where did it come from? Who makes, who makes the world turn? Who makes all the stars and everything move? Who does all that? And he reached the conclusion that it's gone. So the question is, Abraham's research into religion, into God, reached the conclusion, he drew a conclusion, there's a God out there, not these idols, there's a real God. Did it come from his intellect? Oh, if it came from his intellect, then it has to be limited. It has to be limited by definition, because any conclusion you draw based on your feelings, based on your intellect, is only your human understanding of something. So it has to be limited. If that's the case, then Abraham would not have reached beyond creation. But the fact is not that way. The fact is that Abraham reached beyond creation. So he, the starting point was using his brains to understand what where creation came from. But then he was able to reach a higher level, higher than his intellect. He was able to reach a higher level than his understanding. So there's a difference between how you start and then how you continue. The continuation has to be deeper than the original cause. And that's what happened to Abraham. Abraham did not stop by his intellectual research of God. You know, he started this university of, of research into God and he concluded there is a God, but he didn't stop there. Because if that would be his whole religion, he's a limit, it's a limited religion. It's based on human understanding. Human understanding, by definition, must be limited. We're finite creatures. How much of the divine could a finite creature appreciate? So Abraham, afterwards, came and kind